There we go. Brock, you got audio now? Yes. Yeah, so, all right. So, uh, welcome to a drama diving. I'll go back through that really quick. Uh, in the comments, you are going to see uh, the YouTube video and YouTube link so you guys can check it out later on and a Patreon. I want to say a big thank you to all of our Patreon guests. Uh, thank you very much for all the, uh, the contributing that you guys are doing. Uh, we are actually producing a new studio currently, so we can have a little bit better, uh, facility going on. Uh, I want to say a big thank you to Scott Smith for the whiskey. We got a Woodford reserve from him. Uh, he, uh, was a thank you for one of his instructor development course, I believe is what that one was. So we'll be sipping on that and, uh, we'll see what, all of our friends are drinking if they are tonight. So uh, one other thing uh, we are going to throw up there is uh, we have been, a drama diving has been selected by Dirty Dozen Expeditions to host a Truck Lagoon trip. So if you guys are interested in that, it is March, 2022. I just posted the link in there and you can request information. So uh, now we got all that stuff out of the way. Let's talk about cave diving, what everybody's got going on. I'm going to throw in Natalie first because she's on the chat normally. I'm going to bring everybody in. How are we all doing? Really good. Hello. Hey. Oh, Nat, you sound so much better. I know. I'm, my, I'm on my phone now. That works. You're like a little sideways, but we'll, we'll figure that out. That's not a problem. So... Um, <laughs> oh my lord, all right. So, we are talking about a bunch of different fun cave diving stuff first off. But, um, I want to say cheers, thank you very much for joining me tonight. Um, there you go, not everybody's got drinks, but that's okay. Um, so let's go around, and I don't know if, um, I think it's gonna be interesting. Let's we'll start with Natalie. Natalie, where are you from? Can you give us just a little rundown, real quick? Uh, yeah, my name is Natalie Gibb, and I'm in Mexico. I'm originally from Southern California, but I've been here in Mexico for 14 years. I'm a cave diver and cave explorer, and I own a cave diving school called Under the Jungle with my business partner, Vincent Roquette Catala. Beautiful. Uh, on my screen, Tamara. Tamara, you're next. Hi there. So I'm Mexican in Mexico. And diving caves, um, starting a little bit to go into the exploration path and loving all of this Mexican cave diving life. Beautiful. All right, I'm going to keep going in the clockwise manner. Christina. Hi, I'm Christina. I'm originally from Italy. I've uh, been living 27 years on the island of Grand Bahama. I'm a cave explorer, instructor, and very much doing quite a lot of exploration and surveys here on the islands. Very nice. Uh, and last but definitely not least, least Trish. Hi. Um, Canadian. Started diving St. Lawrence, Great Lakes, uh, Tobermory. Um, ended up passionately involved scientifically with caves. I got very lucky and it has led me to spending a lot of time cave diving and doing science in uh, caves in Vancouver Island, in the Yucatan, all sorts of different places. Um, that works. I like it. I like when we get Canadians and anybody that's been in the St. Lawrence River because that's very true to us and uh, very close to our heart. So I love that you're joining us there. All right. So um, I first kind of caught wind of this whole thing because Natalie joined our show and got in some 
we'll go with discussions with other people. And then I followed everything that was going on. And uh, you guys have an interesting cave diving thing that you guys have been up to um, just because I got the, uh, oh, I figured it out from Natalie. Natalie, you want to give us a rundown of some of the cave diving stuff, uh, social media wise that you're up to? Um, if we're talking about the science things, is yes. the, right? So um, I, about two years ago, I started uh, Under the Jungle's uh, yearly science week, which as a chemist myself, I've always been really passionate about science. And I actually started uh, diving down here to try to combine uh, my background in chemistry and biochemistry with, uh, with diving. And so it's always been a thing I've wanted to combine again. And maybe, I don't know how long ago now, Trish, uh, a while ago, I met, uh, Dr. Patricia Meadows through Bill Phillips down here. And uh, she's like this really awesome cave diving woman who's down here. And I, I met her and she's at, a, at his shop and she's like pulling out all these weird contraptions from the truck of this rental car and like slapping them down and everything. And I was like, who is this scientist who's doing things? I must know her. Amazing. And so over the years, I've gotten to know Trish. And so the idea of doing Science Week sort of started with her, where this idea of, well, I have all these divers who I've trained to a really high level. They can take notes. They can do things in the caves underwater. And they're all, like, my dive shop sort of self-selects, sorry, guys, uh, for kind of nerds. Like, we're all geeks about caves and science and things. So they're all into it. Everybody wants to do something like this. So we decided let's combine these, like, excellent and skilled divers who want to do these things and try to get them, like, involved with Trish, and we'll do Science Week, and they can do the hands-on stuff and learn learn about cave science from, from Dr. Patricia Bettos, who's a renowned hydrogeologist and has worked down here for so many years. And so it started that way. We did the first one two years ago. Um, there's videos up on our website and uh, Vimeo and such, and on my Facebook of, you know, Under the Jungle Science Week. And we started, um, I guess, two years ago with basically water sampling for Trish and uh, flow meter installation. And her, she's gonna talk a bit more about that and then um, this year we were going to do like a really hyper-specific, super aggressive project, but then, then COVID hit, so Trish couldn't travel because she's in university and they wouldn't let her. Um, but Science Week still happened, and I was like, oh, no, I need to like have science to do. And I had been sort of on and off helping uh, Tamara with this project she just got started, which is super interesting, um, which is she's studying sort of the distribution and a species of fossilized coral that we find here in our caves and nobody's ever done this before. So it's absolutely groundbreaking and she's putting together a database of fossilized corals that we find in the caves and she's just starting. And so I was like, wow, you have to come and be part of my science week. I'm gonna train my divers to do this. And then Trish got on remotely and taught us a lot about um, something super interesting, which is how the different ceiling depths can tell us about um, the different sort of phases of cave formation historically in the area. And then we did a lot of work with uh, flow meters in a very restricted site that you normally can't access. So it ended up being like a really cool week um, for the second one. I were to keep doing it again, and one of the fallouts was I got to really work with Tamara for the first time, which was incredible. 
And then uh, Christina is here as well because she's actually was hopping on uh, for the Science Week stuff remotely because she's starting to do installation of flow meters in the Bahamas. So uh, my role of this was sort of the coordinator, but I'm not, I'm not the scientist. I'm just the person who was like bringing everybody together and being like, talk and learn. <laughs> I love it. That's <laughs> amazing. I think everybody else here can talk more about the actual science that they're doing and what it's telling us and all the new things we're learning about the caves down here, which is just absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. And that's exactly like um, we're going to have um, from our audience wise, we're going to have non, non, we could have non divers. We could have non cave divers. We could have cave divers. We could have, you know, um, borderline explorers or explorers. So feel free to like, as Natalie was saying, like nerd out, like tell everything, <laughs> just go right ahead. And, and if you get in your little space, don't apologize for it. Just go ahead with it. Um, I do have a mild bone to pick because Natalie couldn't come to a couple of the drama divings. I really wanted her on because she was sampling stuff. I don't know who put you on that <laughs> task, but science week. I can't come. You have no idea. Well, cause I'm coordinating this whole thing out of my dive shop and then I'm going to do these little mini documentaries to promote it for next year. So they're all leaving at like 8 PM and I'm doing dailies of like this just ridiculous amount of like B-roll shots because none of it's set up. <laughs> wow. Do you feel do you fill the cenotes around you with your tears? Because you're just crying right now. It was amazing, <laughs> but I was just <laughs> All right. So uh you uh went through Trish first. So let's go ahead and grab Trish. Trish, why don't you give us a little rundown of um kind of what you're up to and um maybe talk to what Natalie had spoken to previously. <laughs> Oh my gosh, where to start? <laughs> um, I'm going to go all like egghead existential. Yeah, I love it. You know, it. You know, I'm I'm operating in this one world, which is you know caves and cave diving, and then the other world is you know as a research academic, uh, so hydrogeology, hydrogeochemistry, and my shtick is looking at uh, dynamic responsive systems to changing boundary conditions, which sounds great. What it means is like when the sea level goes up and down, how does the water in the cave slosh back and forth when the climate changes, when the surface um, above gets bulldozed and a parking lot gets put in. So when something uh, external or even, you know, the, the hidden boundary condition is the internal, which is, you know, things like collapse or sedimentation start to come in. And one of the challenges is getting enough data over space and time. And normally what we do is, you know, you put in a big grant to the National Science Foundation um, uh, or its equivalent in the country that you're in and you get um, hopefully a bucket of money and you then go and buy really expensive commercial equipment. And sometimes those come in, like if you want a flow meter, um, you're looking at starting at 5,000, but all the way up to 40,000. And I started off my career playing with a lot of those. The problem is they're made for open ocean. So you have this 50 kilo negative oceanographic flow meter that is uh, needs to be screwed into the ceiling, anchored to the floor with counterweights, and you're dealing with multiple lift bags. Uh, there's nothing pleasant about it. And then the data that you get eh, kind of shows you what's happening. Um, and then, you know, there's other instruments and they tend to get flooded and everything just turns out to be really expensive. But the model is, you know, you get this budget and you buy commercial equipment. A lot of it is very expensive and no one is making equipment for caves, period. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. So <clears throat> everything's like 
you know, jury-rigged and MacGyvered, um, and then, in, you know, the data sort of comes back. But the problem from a science point of view is you now have this extreme investment in one observation point. And I want you to think about it. It's like if you have one instrument and you're putting a $40,000 instrument into one site, which site do you pick as being representative of the whole system? And the answer is, it's like, it's, 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 it's an intractable problem. And so um, while you do get really nice data out of these highly engineered instruments a lot of times, um, it blows your budget. So what we need to do collectively, and I'm definitely very invested in this, is democratizing science, you know, blowing open the model and going to a different model. And part of that is by developing open source accessible instrumentation that is at a much lower price point. And while the individual instrument isn't giving quite as nice data as the $40,000 flow meter, it's a $200 flow meter. <laughs> <laughs> and so consequently, you know, you get complex cave systems, you know, if you're in the Bahamas and you've got the Atlantic on one side and the Caribbean on the other, and both of them are having influences on the caves, there is no single location that's going to tell you what's happening in the whole system. You actually need to put in several of them. Same thing in the Yucatan where you have, you know, Sakaktun or Oshbelha, you know, some of the big systems, and there's multiple parallel flow paths. You need to have observations in all of them. And so by really changing the economic uh, technology model, um, that's an area that I'm just heavily invested in. So um, I don't know, uh, we've got about 350 systems out right now. <laughs> Love it. And it includes everything from like climate stations because it's the whole system. It's like what's happening with the weather systems, with those hurricanes that are going through what's happening with the sea level, um, what's happening with the infiltration of the water getting from the ground surface to the underground, um, then what happens with that water flowing through. And of course you got density stratification, you got the fresh water on top, you got that beautiful magical halocline, and then the salt water underneath is doing a whole bunch of stuff. And you think the salt water is quiet and boring and it is anything but, um, you know, and so, this scales up to me from an academic point of view in, in writing transfer functions and looking at hydrodynamic responses, which sounds nice, but has very real practical applications, which is, especially with long-term monitoring, getting some of these instruments and sites that one day may or will be impacted by sometimes very severe development influence, straight up collapse, infill, sewage contamination, the full range as possible. And just from a collective concern for these environments that we care about, if you don't have the background data when something changes, you can't even state that something changed. So that's definitely part of it. My my um, my long-term dream, uh, especially with the, the Yucatan uh, research is that there will be a robust community, especially tied to the Mexican government, who I can just gift the whole thing to. <laughs> <laughs> but that means that there has to be more people involved and there's very real limits. It's like uh, no one person can do everything. So, so how do you means, get more people involved? Well, <laughs> that's when we get into citizen science. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh man, I feel like I'm over talking. Okay, citizen science, 
you're good. We're going to get to everybody else. Everybody's listening to you right. and they're going to add in a little bit. <laughs> the concept of citizen science is that you get people who are interested, but who don't necessarily have any formal training. So they're not hydrogeologists. They don't have a university degree behind them. Um, but they're interested and they they bring different skills and attributes. And sometimes it's just being present. And you sometimes train them to do systematic observations. And sometimes you give them specific pieces of equipment that they need. And the idea is to build a network where you can have multiplication of the reach of the science. And sometimes this works. <laughs> Sometimes there's some like there's thousands of citizen science projects out there. Some of them are focused on collecting water quality data. Some of them are focused on uh, literally transcribing 300 year old ship logs um, written in very old script and falling apart manuscripts. So some and some of them are on the data analysis side where people are searching through vast amounts of data for signals from extraterrestrial life, literally. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, what we're talking about here is it's not a, it's not a general, it's, it's, it's the citizen that we're talking about here is somebody who's empowered as a cave diver, um, who is given enough access to and training to do certain things really well and therefore multiply the reach. And there's a lot of failed citizen science projects out there where people collect a lot of data, but it's not very good. And that is a very serious risk uh, that a lot of people get involved. There's a lot of effort, but the quality is not there. And just like going from commercial instruments to open source Arduino microcontroller based instruments, we gain the budget, we lose some elements of the quality, but we multiply the physical reach through space and time. Same is happening with the citizen science where um, perhaps not everyone, but you know, certain people are investing, they get the right kind of training and what they deliver is really darn good. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, there might be some devil, you know, there's the occasional misread because they're not a trained hydrogeologist or um, fossil expert, but boy, does it multiply. Mm -hmm. And so really that's changing the paradigm of science. Yeah, that's a that's, lot of what I'm really passionate about. Yeah, we are, we are on the same page on that one. We're trying to get some scuba projects started up here that uh, um, I think we're starting to go, but weren't quite where they needed to be. And I think there's a lot. Um, I am a dive safety officer for SUNY ESF and uh which is our state school or environmental school of forestry. So we're trying to get something started. Uh, convincing people, well, I'm sure you're familiar, convincing people up this way that we need to go and scuba dive to research some things. They're like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, why would you even get in this water? It's a little bit of a challenge, but we're on the same page with the, the citizen science stuff. So um, to make our transition, Tamara, you were next on Natalie's kind of rundown, and then we're going to go to Christina afterwards. Tamara, can you give us a rundown of exactly what, well, well generally what you're up to? I don't, you don't have to get exactly, but generally <laughs> what you're up to, and um, are you using citizen science, I suppose, and and how, where are we going, and kind of how you got hooked up with Natalie? Well, it's a, it's a long story, but um, yeah. 
we have time. But it's an interesting one, exactly. And I think it's it's kind of a fun story as well. So I grew up here in Mexico and um, growing up, I was always, well, either at the beach or in the mangrove or in the cenote. Like there wasn't really many things that I could do aside from being in nature. So for me, all of those things that um, people have been pa passionate about for their entire lives. For me, that was just the backyard and that's pretty much all I knew. So many, many, many years later, I end up here again and I became a scuba instructor when I quit my previous uh, career. And then I started realizing that I knew things that normal people don't know. Um, <laughs> and just out of curiosity, I started um sort of like yeah i sometimes call myself a self-taught naturalist because just out of curiosity i would see something and could not sleep until i know the name of this animal that i saw or you know like i'm that type of person if i hear a word that i don't know i'll just go and, and research it because I, I i don't like not knowing and it's a big problem because i don't know most of the things that exist in the world um so yeah, um, when I when I started teaching diving, I also realized that a lot of uh, scuba instructors don't know a lot of that, about the environment. Uh, that they don't um, know a lot about a lot of things. About a lot of things, but I used to ask people, "Do you consider yourself a nature guide?" And they'd be like, "No," and I'd be like, "But you're a guide." and you guide in nature. So why are you not a nature guide like a hiker would be or someone guiding in a national park in uh, in Yosemite or whatever? Like we are nature guides and we don't see ourselves as such. And so I kept being that person that is annoying on the boat and who is always telling them what they just saw. And I won't say that nobody cared, but I often felt that there was kind of room for more people to be interested in things that are just around us. And that's pretty much how I came to the Cave Corals Project. I started cave diving and after having volunteered for like, I guess four or five years in coral restoration and coral monitoring, I just go into a cave and I just look and I'm like, oh my, this is full of coral fossils and I won't know which ones. So I started, kind of asking people like did you see that and they're like no <laughs> but and i'm like but it's full of it and people are like full of what and i'm like the fossils and they're like that really and i'm like yeah i mean you've been diving here for 10 years have you never looked at the fossils and they're like well i know they're fossils but like you know so i was like no i, I have to know and i started just like asking basically every person that i knew until i annoyed all of my uh, <laughs> all of my nearby circles with the corals and nobody knew. And so I started going back to the people who had taught me about coral reefs. And so like for, um, for instance, in, in the labs that I already knew from the coral monitoring and I'd be like, hey, do you know anything about these fossils? And some people would know something, but mainly they would tell me I'm not the right person to tell you that. I know it exists. I don't know 
if what you're asking is kind of uh, written down or or documented anywhere, but you can ask this next person. So I'd be going to the next lab and knocking on the next door, annoying the next person up. And uh, it was pretty exciting and also a very lonely journey because I don't have a professional background in science. So everything that I know, I've been either gathering or or studying, but I did not go to a faculty to learn it. So most of the time I felt like I was about to discover that my idea was crap. Um, and the rest of the time I was pretty excited because people would tell me like, this doesn't exist, but your, your question has not been answered and I was like no I can't believe it like I'm not I'm not that smart right like <laughs> I, I'm not like like asking something that nobody has ever asked themselves and I could not believe it and today I still cannot believe it and if there is someone out there who has a list of fossilized coral species that exists already from the caves in Mexico like you need to call me because I've invested a fair amount of time and life in doing this project. And if someone did it already, I need to know now. Um, but anyway, I, I discovered uh, a lot of really interesting uh, people, but the, the actual kind of like connecting point to this is that if a scientist is not a cave diver, there's, a very slim chance they're gonna go and have these questions. Like, we go in the caves and that's why we are crazy about them. And someone who's never been in the cave is not aware in my case, in the case of the project that I that I do, it's like they are not aware of how many fossil corals there are piled up. So I end up talking to like the top coral paleontologist of Mexico. And when I sent him a, a WhatsApp message saying like, hey, I have this question and I'm a cave diver and I have these photos. And he replies like, you need to call me right now. So it's been pretty, pretty exciting like that. Like uh, some pretty cool people said, I have to call them, you know? And um, so aside from annoying all of my uh, friends and family and, <laughs> co-divers, um, I've also kind of sparkled a lot of that same curiosity that I have uh, with people who are actually quite passionate uh, about these nerdy things, uh, such as Natalie. And uh, we connected because one of the very first posts about the Sunday geology game was about a coral fossil. And so basically at that point when it came up and I could not not answer, it's like on Facebook, I'm trying to like not engage so that I don't get too hooked up. But on this occasion, I was like, I cannot not answer. Um, I kind of had discovered that basically I needed someone who was a cave diver, who knew corals very well, who was a photographer and even more, who was a macro photographer because I'm gonna to need to do some very, very, very big macro in there. And I have asked famous photographers, hey, what do you recommend for macro in a cave? And they're like, why you wanna do macro in a cave? And I'm like, okay, never mind. next person I need to ask. So there's been a lot of asking. Um, but when this came up on the Sunday geology game, I was like, 
oh my god now natalie gibb knows about it and i can't back off like i can't <laughs> i can't step back because now she knows that i had this idea and and basically it was very casual it was very um natural that we got together one afternoon and we talked about it and we were both like okay so what do we do next like literally like tomorrow we're going to do this and this and this and we started um making some tests and uh, she gave it a shot at macro cave photography which is pretty it's pretty trailblazing if i must say because they don't have macro lens either yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it just happened to get you a new camera, right? Well, just happened to get a new camera out of the just happened. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> this was and not, so my camera's not macro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so basically the um I came to a point where I literally had a research research question and um there were many times where I had to google like scientific method like what is a what is a, a general objective and you know what is a specific objective and i remember like yeah maybe in primary school i was uh going back like 30 years when i must have studied biology and you know we never really know what those things are going to mean 30 years later i wish i i would have like paid attention <laughs> 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 and uh yeah and then basically so um after all of the encouragement and all of the amazing ideas of what can be done with the cave corals project i decided that i was going to do the the most basic type of study which is a baseline study and it just consists of making a list of species uh with a very simple method of photo and eye identification so um comparing the macro photos of the fossilized corals with the resources that we have, which are very little. Like if you type coral fossil, you'll find a bunch of websites that sell jewelry with like polished uh, coral in them and stuff. So uh, that was also pretty, pretty deceiving. Um, and so, yeah, I'm going to make that list. Uh, we have a little bit of uh, an idea of the things that we will find to start with, uh, but it has like a huge potential and that's the part that becomes really overwhelming that I have never done anything alike. And, um, and yeah, and we can, and we can eventually know quite a lot of stuff about not only the coral itself, but the, sea levels or the sediment what does sediment do to fossils or what does the water do to to the actual fossils um or many other questions like geologists want me to do it one way biologists wants me to do it another way hydrologists obviously want me to do it their way and i'm sometimes i was just there like should i do it at all uh it seems like it's bigger than me but yeah narrowing it down helped a lot and and also kind of knowing that this is um it's something that i'm doing because i need to know and that kind of gives me you know every day i'm going to do the steps that i can do today and then tomorrow and like this it's been already like a year and a half two years um and there's uh, some interesting stuff piling up so yeah 
A good question is going to create more questions and less answers. So you you are completely on the right track because having all of those questions come up means that you're you're on the right track. And I love that you are learning for the sake of learning. And and um, I think that's I was an educator for well, I was a classroom educator for seven years, and that was one of my big things was uh, trying to get people to learn for the sake of learning for themselves. And it seems like you got that dead on there. So. Um, kudos to that. And, and it's, Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's very nice. So Christina, we yeah. are 35 minutes into our show and we finally got you waiting patiently with a shark over your left-hand shoulder. I love it. So oh, was- uh, do you even remember the question I asked? <laughs> well, I, mean, I think it was about how we, bec- I became involved into the, the project or why I'm into this. Yeah. Yeah. What projects are you into? And kind of, I mean, my question was, how'd you get in with Natalie? Cause Natalie's who got me to you guys. Um, so essentially it's, what are you working on and how Natalie rope you into her thing? Okay. So the mine started with actually sharks, uh, the one that is right over well, the shoulder. Yep. And the fact that I worked very, I worked with sharks in the wild and I worked very hard here in the Bahamas to have our sharks protected a bit as, as a cave diver, I quickly realized that protecting the sharks as, a, as an animal itself uh, did not really protect the animal because if we don't protect their food and if we don't protect their environment, if we don't protect, especially where they go to mate and have uh, their pups and where their pups stay for quite a long time, uh, then protecting the animal itself doesn't really help. It's like protecting the orangutan while we're taking down the forest it doesn't really work. You have to protect the forest. And as a cave diver, I made that connection fairly early because uh, here, especially the Grand Bahama where I am, you are some caves or you're wading through the mangroves. And as you're wading to go to the entrance of the cave, there's like little baby sharks zipping by your ankles. And so it's very quickly you make a connection say, okay, it's caves or mangroves or sharks. And then in 2012, after about five years work, I connected a land-based uh, cave, uh, similar to like a cenotus entrance. But then I came out in an ocean blue hole which is uh, siphons and blows water uh, on, on a cycle, like on a six hour cycle, six on six, uh, six siphon, six spring and repeats twice per day. But because of the little Bahama bank, we also have tidal changes and delays. Uh, this hole is placed under a native settlement and Dr. Patricia Bedos mentioned, if you start taking down the forest and you put a parking lot, what happens to the cave? And this cave specifically, which is under a native uh, settlement, is extremely polluted. I went in actually the other day, we're continuing now a new project, thanks Patricia, and uh, it hasn't changed, it's still atrocious. The conditions in there are a visibility of one to two foot and absolutely an explosion of microbial growth. So uh, very, very bad. And so all of a sudden I realized that no matter where you are, you need to do something about Uh, where the water goes and the water flows, but how does it flow? And like Patricia said, especially in the Bahamas, it goes from the Atlantic into the little Bahama bank and then from the little Bahama bank into the Atlantic. But then here, especially this island in Abaco, we had something that maybe most people remember, which is Hurricane Dorian. And Hurricane Dorian was like the, like really the aha moment for me. while I had all these questions, while I've been doing a lot of survey work and showing that these caves connect and where the hole goes and how the sharks are, uh, Hurricane Dorian changed the aspects of our caves to the point that it completely eliminated layers of uh, sediments 
they're gone. Like the color of the cave, I had a cave, I used to, used to call it the Gothic cave because it was completely layered in black, absolutely adored it. And now is white clay with orange fluff. Hmm. And so I brought up even more questions. So where before it was like, I really need to demonstrate what this water does in order to protect not only the sharks, but the land and the caves. All of a sudden it was like, well, when that, what happens when we have something catastrophic like that? And so I was following Natalie's uh, Sunday uh, trivia, of course. And all of a sudden I read some of Patricia's comments and I read about the flow meters. And that is when we reach out to Patricia, to Dr. Bedos, and I said, well, we will be loving to be involved into this project and find out um, what is happening, even if it's just one island. And even just one island of like Grand Bahama, we are, if you, if you look at our island, we're basically stretched east to west for a section, but then we kind of like turn and we kind of go like a southeast to northwestish type of thing. And the figuring out where to put the flow meters, and we're like, oh, should we put it on this side or should we put it on that side? And we also have, they dug an artificial channel and cuts the island in half. And so we were looking at the map and, and Patricia was like, well, you know, on this side, it's going to flow like this. So that is where I fell in love with the concept of democratization of science. That is, I, I told Patricia, I will steal that because for me, it was really what I wanted to be involved with, which is uh, not having to find forty, fifty thousand dollars grant, but being able with my skills, my background, my capability, my questions to find something that I could actually participate and then collect. And so that's how uh, we became involved. For many years, I was the only one doing everything here on the island. Now there's two of us. So there's uh, we're the two only citizen science. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully with time, we'll be able to expand. And my buddy is uh, Kevin Lorenzen. And so he helps bringing in the flow meters, the setting up, um, finding the places. But that it all started honestly with the sharks and my desire to protect them beyond just protecting the animal. So that's how I connect to sharks and caves. I love it. That's very interesting. And then you just met Natalie through social media, essentially. Yeah. We met at the yeah. live conference at uh, Siskiyou oh. in Canada. <laughs> we were both yeah. speakers. And she was giving a pre presentation about Pandora. And I was looking at the cave and I'm like, I dive in something like that. <laughs> I have the same exact condition. So after the conference, we were just talking away. And, and that is the other interesting part of what cave diving is. As you go inside something, I remember when I was doing chimney to uh, mermaid's whole connection, I thought I was diving really in a, in a, in a poop hole. I was just kind of like, oh, this is horrible. This is bad. But then through Natalie and through uh, Patricia, all of a sudden I'm like, hmm, what is this? Ooh, good. And, and it actually brings up more questions. And so I want to know why this cave looks like this. And then six miles down the line, this cave looks completely different. And why is the sediment like that? And why some caves, for example, have absolutely different um, structure? Right, even from my island, for example, to Abaco, there's like huge uh, differences. And uh, it really opened up the eyes into now nothing, even if it's like one foot visibility, there's still questions in there to be answered and hopefully uh, solutions to be found. I always call Chimney Mermaid kind of like the, 
the ambassador cave, if we can demonstrate why that cave is so affected by the human presence, maybe we can also use that as leverage to say, well, maybe we shouldn't affect this other cave with the human presence. And that's what I'm hoping to receive through checking all of that. But furthermore, what I'm really, and not that I'm hoping that, but I wish we'd had the cave pearls in the caves before Dorian because we heard the stories from the people that were closer to those areas. And we heard the stories of, uh, luckily I was in a 30% of the island that didn't go underwater, but the people that were navigating with the boats, you know, at the treetops with 30, 40 feet of sea level below them in the middle of the island. And that affected us. We still have salt water coming out of our tap. We had a beautiful freshwater lens. We drinking water out of the tap. That was a privilege that we have lost since Dorian. Absolutely. So all that is extremely interesting. Um, as, but as Brock says, it's all just wet, wet rocks. Um, I'm sure you've heard that before. Brock, Brock just messing with you guys. Um, a couple of things. One, this, this show has already been rated explicit. I didn't tell you guys that. We already have this E next to us for all the podcasts. So if you curse by accident, it doesn't matter because Natalie cursed up a storm like a couple weeks ago. And then we got an E rating. And the whole thing went south from there. Um <laughs> but Scott brings up a point that I was going to bring up. I love the passion of ladies trying multiple things in life together. If Natalie smiles, any bigger will cover the scene. Kudos to all of you. Best of luck. Needs another show months from now to update. I completely agree. Um, so uh, one of the things that uh, I, I really particularly enjoy about this is the uh, citizen scientist aspect. And I already kind of mentioned that, uh, but uh two things with that one if you guys have comments if you're following um i know that everybody's been kind of talking and it seems like everybody's been listening if you got questions throw them up there so we can start throwing putting our comments so we can put them up there um and two while people are putting those comments in there um how do we and and, and trish you kind of talked about this already but what do you guys need from a citizen science movement is there anything where people that are listening to this show that get involved in general, that they can help you um, or what route uh, the question is going to come up eventually. How do I get involved? Um, somebody's <laughs> going to ask at some point in time. And it, from what I understand, Natalie's got to give you her personal blessing based off of your performance in a cave by her. Is that what I understood Natalie? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so right now our science week will, uh, it's, I'm pretty much working with my former students because I know the procedures and everything. So, you know, if you want to do this, you can at least come diving with me a little bit because we need to know like where you're at and what your procedures are. It's unfortunately a thing where we need to make sure everybody's just on the same page with absolutely everything as we're going into the uh, kind of the harshest environment on the planet. And then we're doing things in a group that have to be highly coordinated. Um, I'm going to interrupt and say it's not unfortunate. It is fortunate. That is exactly how it should be handled. It is not unfortunate in any way, shape, or form. To be able to do this, it should be highly regulated by people that know what's going on going into caves. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah. So um, I guess like if you really want to do this with our shop, it would be something like uh, come do some dives with us and learn our procedures and stuff before the science week so that you're on the same page with the rest of the divers. Um, not trying to be snotty or anything. It's just 
different people die of different ways, different procedures, and everybody has to have, you know, down to the same methods of communicating or it's going to be a, I can swear, otherwise it'll be like a complete and total shit show. So <laughs> it can't be like that. Um, but there's a lot of things I think um, people who are around the world and in caves can think about with the flow meters as well, just like, I mean, the, the builds for these are up online. Trish can talk to you about that a little bit. You can create these things yourself and study whatever you want to study. And that's what's really cool. So I think, in my opinion, from a citizen science, if you've got something you want to study in water, build a flow meter. Well, it doesn't have to be a flow meter. Build a data log, or you can put whatever kinds of sensors you want in it and do your science, man. Just do it. Like, don't wait for permission. Don't wait for somebody to show you how to do it. Get started. You need permits where appropriate. But yeah, if you have if you need permits, get permits. But otherwise, but don't just sit around and be like, oh, somebody should study this. Why not you? You study it. Be like Tamara. <laughs> so I think, yeah, one, well, one of the, sorry. I, I think one of the big challenges of what's happening right now in the last year and a half is partly it's the technology, but it's also the data management and the data flow. And that's where uh, my biggest problem is right now, sincerely, is, is there's so much data coming in. And so it's turning into a data science problem. This is a wonderful problem to have. Um, but, you know, one, one way to do it is, you know, the, the other challenge, too, is I am increasingly realizing over the years, there aren't actually that many scientists cave diving. Like, it's a small list. <laughs> and, you know, I'm in this for the long run. Like, I want to be cave diving when I'm 80. Um, you know, like, <laughs> uh, so the challenge right now is, is, is the multiplication. And so it's really wonderful to have to pause and take the time and get data entry sheets and metadata standards. My God, if I can find a cave diving librarian who's really good at metadata, <laughs> like, like it sounds really quixotic, but that that frankly is is uh, somebody who really knows how to set up a database, a scientific I have database a for the long term. Divers, you should probably talk to actually. Programmers or librarians? Uh, I think people that could do this. <laughs> um, so, but it's it's also like getting the data entry sheets so that they're functional and usable because, you know, it's not just a cave dive, it's a task loading cave dive. And I have gone through so many diving buddies. It's like, I will dive for science. I will do anything. I will show up anywhere. <laughs> and we get to wherever and I was like, okay, so, you know, Briefing starts to happen, and the dive plan is literally, uh, you know, we're going to go about 12 minutes in, and you are going to sit and be my buddy, and and we're going to have, you know, an extension line, and, da, 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 and you're going to sit there, and you're we're going to work safely, and we're going to practice these things, but essentially, we're doing science in a very limited scale for two hours. <laughs> So put on your extra wetsuits or the extra thick thermal underneath your dry suit. And they're like, well, why don't we bring some extra tanks? We'll get out the scooters. And I'm like, that's not what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> it is just so not what it's not about. So, I mean, I've always managed to do uh, like a lot of my sampling sites are uh, don't have restrictions, don't have stages, no scooters, none of that. And yeah. they're really good sites. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, Natalie. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Poor 
Um, but it's, it's task loading. And that's, I think, a big challenge. It's like putting, you know, there's a, an amazing article out there about what happens when you put a camera in somebody's hands. You know, it's the same thing by taking on the extra task loading of doing science. Um, and so it's, it's, it's wonderful, but it's still not for everyone. And so, yeah, having, having uh, some preparation to undertake this responsibility is, is really good. Um, so on the scientist side, having the data entry forms so that the data comes in, it's gonna be of a certain quality that it's interpretable, that it's actually gonna go somewhere because there are a lot of citizen science projects out there that produce a lot of data and they actually just quietly just like let it go away. <laughs> it's really sad. <laughs> and that's, I mean, like, that's, not, something, that's something Trish and I have been working on like pretty heavily, like every science week, it's almost right now more than getting the data, like we're getting data, but like with, since we're working with like a bunch of people who haven't done this before, so yeah. much of what we're doing right now is really important, but it's process development. Like we design a sheet, we put it in the diver's hands and they're like, what the fuck? No, this should be in the other order. You're like, fine. And we redo it. And it's like, no, it can't be in that order because of this. And we're like, okay, we redo it. We've gone through like, Maybe last science week, we went through like six iterations of the flow meter data sheet, yeah. like overnight, like talking about it over and over again. I'm printing out all these sheets every night, redoing everything, reteaching it. So we got something that was usable. Um, so the data management is, a, is an issue, but we're, we're getting closer with the yeah. sheets, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're getting a lot of that's trial and error, right? Figuring out what works and what order you need it in and, and finding the right people to make that happen. So that's, you know, yeah, that is definitely a challenge. Yeah, and, and Tamara has been been moving through this as well because, you know, it's like step one is just like, right, systematic collection of quality data. <laughs> right. Huge issue in a cave. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's even like how tall was the passageway? Well, Meters or feet? Uh-oh. Like half my divers think in feet and half of them think in meters. Well, this is a problem. And then you're estimating, but do you know for sure? Like how like how exact is this data? Like it's a huge concern, all of this stuff working together. It gets really complicated really. Or, or the, the setup and the header information, this metadata, which is what's your dive computer set to? Yeah. Do you, What kind of dive computer do you have and what is it set to? And like... Okay, so we're all diving shearwaters, and one person has a Sunto. So now I have to go test dive with my friend who has a Sunto to make sure the depth sensors and things are reading the same, because otherwise your data is useless, and I have to loan her my computer. <laughs> I think part of the problem is the imperial system. Actually, most of the problem is the imperial system. Let's just get rid of that garbage. <laughs> well, That's... can we just all have a unanimous vote here in Japan? <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, metric all the way. And I, every person I've ever talked to is like metric, but apparently we can't get that done. It's just like daylight savings time. No one wants it, but apparently we can't get rid of it. So actually our state got rid of daylight savings time. It's a brilliant and wonderful thing. It's ridiculous. I don't even understand. Um, Tamara, question for you, but I think it was kind of answered. Can cave divers in Mexico report coral fossils to you or to your group or to whoever you're working with? Well, that's a really good question. Um, it's a little bit. Um, Excuse me. Okay, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'll explain a little bit what we do when we when we collect the data for a fossil. So then I'll be able to answer. So 
uh, we have some data sheets with all the information we need. We go in, we find our wonderful fossil, we take all the data, we make a series of photos of different types that we need for the ID, and we do a survey of the exact place where the, cost, uh, for, where the um, coral fossil is. And then we put all of that in a database that is um, an amazing creation of our friend Sebastian Kister, who is a genius and also one of the most generous persons that I know. Um, and he created this database for the project. So we'll have all of the photos and all of the ID identifications uh, confirmed, pending, in process, whatever. Now, um, it's very difficult for me to just have a report of a coral and say like, I mean, I do get these calls like, yeah, so I saw a coral in Chicken Hat. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, cool. Like, do you want me to come and see it with you? Like, can you show me back to it? And they're like, yeah, they're like behind that big white rock, you know, like on the left side. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. Like, I, I I, get it how well we know the caves. But I, if I want to report this in a, in a paper, I need to actually have very precise data and one of my biggest worries is if I find an undescribed species or an extinct species I'm gonna need to go back to that one little coral maybe more than one time mm -hmm. and if I ever have a photo of a coral that I don't know where it is and this turns out to be the holy grail of extinct coral fossils I I'm just going to like disappear and you'll never hear of me again. <laughs> so you may report corals, but the best way would be A, that you learn the method so you can have your own little notebook and you go on and whenever you want, you collect the data and then you kind of join the project if you have that interest. The second best option is that you make a photo and you show it to me, then I can tell you, well, we need to go and take this data, or I can tell you I have 500 photos of the common brain corals. So um, yeah, I, I, I maybe not going to go and photograph every single fossil that is reported. But what if you show me a photo and you know the location of this one coral that I've been looking for months? Um, then we go back and we collect the data and I'll be more than happy to show the method to uh, divers who want to uh, participate. Um, I have a long history of volunteering myself with different kinds of projects in Mexico and abroad. And I have to say that I'm probably one of the most consistent people when it comes to volunteering. Like out of 10 people that say I'm going to volunteer in the end, it's kind of like a few of us just hanging because a lot of people have like a spark of interest, but they don't have the means to be there every single time that is needed. Um, and also the other thing is like we were saying, the skill that is required to take data in a cave and to take photos in a cave safely and to take macro photos in a cave safely without breaking the cave is quite limited. Like it's, it's not every diver and it's not every cave diver. So if you feel that you have the skill and you maybe have some experience, even if it's like doing other types of monitoring in open water, like I originally started, um, 
yeah, then why not? And and you were saying, what can people do to get involved? What if you guys out there have like a true interest in doing this type of thing? You can start with easy methods that are, um, well, scientific methods that are available and that are that require like a basic level of skill, so that then you can build up. Like the first project that I ever participated in. Uh, actually, I was in charge of the logistics because I was the diving instructor. So I was in charge of like booking the boat and the tanks and whatever. But I was also uh, paired up with one of the technicians. So I learned the method and it literally consisted in noting down every time that a diver kicked the coral, the bottom, the sediment or, you know, like it was an impact study. So I was holding a, a, um, a slate and every time they kick, I was like kick, kick kick and so we could count how many times a diver kicks coral per per dive you know that was like pretty simple and pretty straightforward uh, or at least it seemed so but it gave me kind of that first skill of being able to do the dive to keep the time and to keep my body and to have data of an observation that was like direct you know happening in front of me um so those things uh help um, now, I do have a bit of an objective that I've set for myself for the next six months. Well, one month is already gone, right? But it's, it was like a free trial month. Uh, so starting February, we go until, let's say, end of July. Um, I would like to have 100 identifications that we have collected. And, um, and hopefully, we have enough time and, and resources to do those dives. And definitely... I, it's not my ideal scenario to go diving alone. Sometimes I do need buddies, but we all know how difficult it is to schedule a cave diving buddy. It's like when you make the plan, there's like six people. And when you are going to go, like everybody got work or did something else or la la la. And so there I am again with my thing. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go to Tash again because it's my safest option. I'll just go for like as far as seven minutes in the cave because I know where those girls are and I'm not gonna you know make it a big dive but yeah how to how to get involved will partner up with people who are doing these things and also get training uh get practice in your skills for the day that someone says like hey who can dive and then you'll be like I can dive I can take notes I can be in the same spot for 25 minutes straight and not complain. And then you can be picked out of a pool of other people who don't have that, that skill, you know? That task loading is huge and being able to pay attention to everything, pay attention to your buoyancy, pay attention to your gas consumption, pay attention to everything. That, that task loading is huge. When we teach the scientific diving, that's one of the things we try to focus on is, is the fact that, and when we teach photography too, you know, you know, you're, you're going to, lose track of things and you need to figure out what you're not paying attention to um, and try to figure that out. I think there's some elements like, for example, um, especially with the, the make do with COVID uh, science week this year, you know, it was, you know, what is powerful and meaningful data that's needed? And it, it cross tabs with the flow meters, uh, but a whole bunch of other things. And, you know, I, I would actually say that cave exploration is probably, um, a really good example of citizen science. It's like putting things on the map, you know, and it cross ties mm -hmm. with what Tamara was saying, where, um, you know, if you don't have the geographical, the geopositional information to go with the observation, it's like, well, that's nice. Does it actually exist? You can't go and find it again. Um, but I think there's also a, a goodness, uh, a functionality on the scientist side 
to conceive of the problems that we have that are vast and complex and lead to more questions, but trying to figure out how to get them down to something that's doable that will have meaning and weight to it. So with the ceiling typology, you know, that basically means staying on the line, you know, and that that is a huge management aspect to the task loading. So, you know, what is the ceiling typology? What's the elevation? What does it look like? Um, what's the infiltration like? Because, you know, the we're in an aquifer system and it has geological beds to it. And some of those beds have echinoderms and some of those beds have fossils, uh, coral fossils. And some of those beds are just like really fine grain, macritic um, limestone, which is, you know, pretty common out in the Bahamas because it tells us it's shallow marine as opposed to a paleo reef. And so getting, and each one of those types of rock has different permeability and they get stalactites or they don't get stalactites or they get covered with thousands of little drip points. So getting just the basic observation of what does it look like? Um, does it have fossils? Is it rough? Is it flat? Does it have lots of drip points? And so it's literally check boxes describing what it looks like, um, but all from the line. And so some mitigation of that task loading when people are taking on this, this scientific task is like, if it's me, you know, I can zoom all over the place and my little bells go off and then I run a jump line, but that that's, you know, this is different. And so having somebody go to a cave that they love and go and systematically take some of these observations, um, that's powerful. And I think it's great. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, hopefully a snowball effect, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and they're going to just by looking, just by seeing, it's like, you know, somebody who loves a cave and they've had 50 dives in whatever cave. Now they start to see the fossil corals. Yeah. And then maybe they commit like on their annual trip, they're going to install a flow meter and they're going to learn how to do that. And every time they go down in December, they're going to do the swap out on that flow meter. It's their station. That's organizing it. And then data compaction is going to be the biggest issues there. But I, I think that finding, finding willing divers is not a issue. Finding capable divers might be part or qualified divers might be more of an issue. I think Christina, you might have more of an issue finding them on the islands than, you know, I mean, you said you got one other person with you, right? Yes. It's just a total of three cave divers in the Bahamas right now, stationary here. Well, four, but one hasn't been cave diving in like two or three years and I'm about to do his refresher. So, and he's an anthropologist. So he has other um, interests, but yes. And so it's just two of us doing all the work, uh, this year alone, we'd actually discovered two brand new cave systems and actually laid and surveyed over 45,000 feet of lines. Thank you, COVID. We had nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> and then we've been doing quite a lot of work that we've been doing. And, and again, this is different, different, different things that we've been doing. And we've been doing like a thanks to Sebastian Kister. Again, he is magical. Uh, what is called an interactive map. So with my camera, I've been swimming down, uh, and that is uh, learning the cave, really. You swim down every single line, and then you take every single turn and come back and take the other turn, and then you can overlap it with a map. And people can actually click on a live link and actually literally swim down the tunnel as the cursor moves along the map. So 
I've been using some of that data to bring to our NGOs here that are pushing for the conservation of some caves just to, because the ma majority of people, actually any, no one in that company, uh, cave dives. So here yeah. they are trying to protect the Lucaya National Park and the Bahamas Cave and all the things that are around from Anaconda to a pirate's mew and nobody has ever seen it but for the videos and pictures that we bring up. And so that is, a, for me, a very important component because otherwise, yes, it's going to go back to what Brock said, right? It's just a bunch of wet rocks while you're so interested in going and seeing a bunch of wet rocks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Exactly. And you said there it's you were breaking up a little bit. Is there a website where you can track that that data or did I mishear that? No, we don't have it on a, on a website. We have okay. it uh, ourselves and then we pro provide it basically to gotcha. the governmental NGOs and say, hey, here's all this data. This might help you in, in fighting for this is our goal. Our goal is to collect the data so that can be used. And then hopefully in the future, again, COVID really put a lot of strain on that but uh there is a program to actually create a, an interactive park so people arrive at the park and they walk and they only see the entrance of the cenote or the the cave let's call it the mexico's and the cenotes but now they can go inside the little museum and it can be a live map in which you're like well where did i walk over because i walk over a bunch of like wet white rocks and i saw a couple of coppice trees and you know a couple of poison woods and but now they can see where they walk so we have plan to put in pictures and say right now you're standing over this giant hollow room and so kind of like surface the cave for people to maybe fall in love with it a little bit more very nice i love it that's that is I, a lot of amazing things happening in general that's that's very very cool um sorry i was gonna just comment that um you know what's underground is often overlooked we we know this yeah. as divers and um the you know from a management perspective is it's ridiculously hard like if we if we abstract from the day-to-day -day, when we have impacts and waste products we either take the waste product and concentrate and contain it but then we have a management economic curatorial legal responsibility and that's what we do with nuclear waste but what we do with most of our waste is you want to take it and you want to chuck it into the biggest earth reservoir that you can find because it'll be distributed and diluted and it'll go away. And the reality is we're now seeing that we live on an unfortunately finite planet. Look at the plastic in the oceans, but the same is true with the aquifer systems. The same is true with, you know, um, groundwater disposal of this beautiful system of dual use aquifers where it's the same aquifer system that we're using for water abstraction <clears throat> for water supplies, but it's also the reservoir in which it's really convenient to pump the waste products. Well, guess what? They don't stay down there. They, they, they move around. Um, and so whether it's the atmosphere and CO2 and smokestack contamination or plastics in the ocean, the ocean's not infinite. It is finite. Um, same thing with groundwater. So, you know, it, it's, it's, there's no place on this planet that we haven't had a footprint. You know, there's, there's pretty nowhere, there's pretty much no place that you can go that a very careful detailed analysis does not find anthropogenic influence, which is very sad. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's being able to figure out with data, with knowledge, where the pressure points are and trying to keep 
the physical intactness of those systems. And if you have a government policymaker, and this is true in the Bahamas, like if you if you go to NASA, there's no freshwater lens left in NASA. Like all the water is pumped in. There's there's tanker there's tanker ships, Christina, right? And they go from correct Andros. They import the water from Andros. And they have the collection galleries and they bring all the water over to NASA because NASA has no more fresh water left. And then if you go to South Florida, you know, there's billions of dollars that we're spending in the U.S. right now to try and mitigate and undo the drainage effect of the drainage canals that have been punched into the swamps. Because shocking as it might be, you put in vast networks of drainage canals and they actually drain water. And it's really surreal because the development management plan in the Riviera Maya right now includes often extensive channelization of the aquifer system to allow for multiplication of the waterfront so that you can get higher value real estate further inland, you can get navigation, you can get boats in, but they're drainage canals. We've played that game before. We played it on NASA. We played it in, in Miami. We know what that does. And <clears throat> same thing with waste, waste disposal where you know, the standard tertiary treatment plant that we have in the United States and Canada and Europe, you know, the gold standard, you know, tertiary treatment plant, it's not good enough for car systems. And part of those treatment plants is to ultimately discharge, it's a treated water stream, but it still has a lot of nutrients. And these groundwater systems that we're talking about are inherently low nutrient systems. And so a little bit of extra nutrients in there just makes everything bloom. So, you know, documenting what we have now is so important. Um, understanding the physical architecture of the system and what the stratigraphy and where the fossil beds are and which ones are more permeable is so important because I argue we have a ticking clock. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that's that. I don't think that's very much to argue about, but I guess some people decide they need to argue about it. But <laughs> um, but if you can show a decision maker, a policymaker, what lies beneath their feet and they gain some investment and some personal passion about it, that is a huge win because they may make a more informed um, policy decision, development decision. Absolutely. Hopefully. Yeah. That's, that's that you, you care about what you know about. Right. So if you don't know what's there, you, it's hard to get somebody to care about it. So, um, we are beyond our hour, but there is one thing that I wanted to cover. And I think we might have to do this all again, because this is very interesting. And, and Natalie's clearly happy about it because her, what did Scott say? Her smile fills up the entire scene. Um, so, um, the the Sunday thing. How does that whole thing work? The cave diving Sunday stuff. Well, okay, we there. Right, there's Nat. All right. Um, how does the cave diving Sunday thing work? Tuesday's the new Sunday, no? Oh, okay. Uh, Tuesday's new Sunday. I wasn't aware. Or it's it's generally Sunday. Okay. Um, Trish and I both like have bitten off more than we can chew the last couple of weekends. We haven't done it for a couple of weeks, but we're going to keep doing it, uh, which is just basically on my uh, my Facebook, which is Natalie L. Gip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now you ha now you have to now you have to tell the joke. I'll Natalie. tell it in a minute. Um, <laughs> so uh, basically, <laughs> um. I just 
posed a question about cave science that has either come up through like discussion previously or that I've had. And then everybody can chime in on what they think the answer is. And then Trish uh, posts like, cause she knows the answers. Um, she posts like a huge PDF uh, answer like a day or two later uh, that we can all read the answers to the questions. But then she also responds really specifically to other questions that have come up and uses the comments to guide the, guide the actual answer. So super interesting and it's really fun to hear like so many people know so much and people are just coming out of the woodwork like people I didn't know were like complete nerds about some particular part of cave science they're going like well did you know in this paper from 2008 so and so said that I'm like whoa I didn't know you even like cared about this stuff so I've learned so much um, from Trish but also from the comments that everybody else has and Sometimes somebody will have a question that I was like, huh, yeah, why does that happen? I never considered that. Oh, no. And then it's a burning question until we ask Trish. So um, it goes on every Sunday-ish. Um, to make it sustainable, we're not going to be able to always do it. But when I do it, it's up on my Facebook sometime on Sunday evening. And if people want to be tagged, they just let me know. And I tag them in all the posts every, uh, every time we do it. And uh, yeah, I've learned a ton. It's cool. It's been hugely community building because, you know, things yeah. are, you know, the world does not, unfortunately, much to our great pain, the world does not revolve around the Yucatan Peninsula caves. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been so much fun having people jump in and like sometimes I call in other contacts because you know the Edwards Aquifer in Texas is a post-Paleozoic aquifer system. It's actually really quite similar, and you know as carbonate platforms go, you know having correspondence with you know the Bahamas um, is directly relevant, and you know and then somebody throws out something from the Mediterranean. So and then also bringing in some of the scientific literature as well and trying to explain it and with some key graphs and then. I think what I get the biggest kick out of is somebody asked something and I have some primary data for it. And I'm like, well, let me tell you, this is what the hillocline is doing. <laughs> it's like, and then the hurricane comes through and this is what the hillocline does when the hurricanes go through. So it's, a, it's, it's this massive guided conversation with lots of noise and chatter and... We should probably do it again this weekend. <laughs> So we're, we've been having a January pause because I'm trying to teach, and in fact, I'm teaching a crop of 12 new students how to build data loggers and doing it all by remote. Um, you know, I'm corresponding with Christina and Kevin, who are in the process of installing a climate station to go with some of the other stuff that they're doing. You know, you know, just a fun fact: I have never actually met either of you, Tamara or Christina. <laughs> But I feel like I know you for like 20 years. <laughs> like the day I see you, I'm just going to hug you like like you're my sister or something. <laughs> I love it. Because we've had so many late night talks. It's like when Trish calls, I must go because she's like, can talk. And I'm like, I will. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. No, we, we get some really impressive stuff done. It's been so much fun. That's great. Um, Excellent. There is a Facebook comment that is way too long to put up on the screen. Um, 
but it is about dynamic maps and um, linking them into flow meters. So um, if at some point in time you guys would jump into the comments and actually answer uh, Lilia's question. Um, and if you guys would want to try to figure out what Lilia's question is, it's on uh, the Facebook feed. So you can jump on and it's uh, it would take up oh, the entire screen. Wow. There's a whole comment section. Yeah, as a whole, oh boy. Yeah, as a whole comment. I've been, I've been <laughs> everybody's been pretty quiet this week because it's not as controversial as normal. It was just kind of a check-in. So um, I'm not actually telling anybody <laughs> off this week. So. Yeah, there's no telling off. There's there's no argumentation, nothing like that. So it's a good, oh. it's a it's a good one. Fe maybe we'll do that for February. Let's try a non-argumentative drama diving. <laughs> I don't think we're gonna pull it off, but maybe we can. Um, can I respond to Brock who's commenting about top-down influence? And that is definitely part of the problem. But when it so Brock wrote, it sounds like some of the cave cenotes are being greatly affected by sewage from the surface. How does that impact the various studies? The thing I would point out is that uh, this is true in the states. It's true in Mediterranean countries. It's true of Canada. It's true of the Bahamas. That deep well disposal is legal and legislated. And so consequently what happens is you take um, um, treated, it can be fully treated water or partially treated water, but it is still fresher water and you pump it down to the bottom of a pipe to some depth. And that fresh water is lower density than salt water you're pumping it into. And so it literally you know, burbles its way back up um, towards the surface. So it, it does not stay down there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then what happened is so a number of years ago with um some some special meetings including with the national water commission and various government organizations in uh mexico they changed the law to make the disposal wells deeper and i was like no the <laughs> don't do it at all because the the analogy is like you have a helium balloon and you let go of the helium balloon how long is it before it hits your ceiling a little bit of time right if you make the disposal well a little bit deeper, that's like taking the helium balloon and bringing it down to the floor level and letting it go. It takes a little bit longer, but it's still going up. Disposal wells are a problem, period. Um, drainage canals, navigations, um, whether or not you can put boats through it or not and get enhanced real estate values is a problem. So in response to Brock, a lot of the nutrient cascade that's affecting karst aquifer systems globally is actually being done completely legally through disposal wells. It's not top down, it's bottom up. All right. Yeah, that sounds like clearly a problem I was not aware of. So that's, I love the analogy of the helium balloon, by the way, that, that very much so clarifies the entire issue. Well, not entire issue, but it clarifies the issue. Put it that way. There. All right. So um, we are close to an hour 20. I think we should jump off and I think we should continue this conversation. Uh, Natalie, it seems like every time you're on, we need to continue the entire conversation <laughs> at a later date. Um, but sure, sure, I'm down. So um, I would love somebody suggested maybe like I, I don't want to go this long. They suggested in a year, um, which is actually I've almost been doing a drama diving for a year, which is really weird. Um, but they suggested in a weird, but I don't, in a year, I don't think that that's uh, appropriate. We should meet sooner than that. But, uh, once you guys, uh, 
get a little bit of traction going into the spring and summer, I think we should uh, definitely reconvene and discuss this again. How would you guys feel about that? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Excellent. All right. So I'm going to pull you guys out of the stream real quick. Let me check to make sure nobody put any last minute comments. Um, like I said, Lily's got a great comment in there if you guys would. Um, and I will uh, say goodbye to the guests. Then I'll come back and say goodbye to you guys. Sound good? Thank Beautiful. you. All right. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you guys joining us. Thank you. All right. All right, everyone. Thank you very, very much. Uh, for listening to A Dram of Diving. As always, uh, if you're jumping on the YouTube stream, um, you will see a follow uh, button over here. Uh, if you're joining us on the podcast, uh, you should be able to see it on SoundCloud and any other place uh, we pretty much host on SoundCloud. Uh, but any place you see it, please give us a like and a follow. Uh, it helps us get, gain a whole lot of traction. And the Patreon, as always, is super, super helpful. Um, and I mean, some people sent some bottles of whiskey. So if you want to send a bottle of whiskey, I'm down with that. That works for me. Uh, I'm not going to argue that in any way, shape or form. So, uh, but thank you very much to all of our guests. Thank you for watching the show or listening to the show. If you're on the podcast and we will see you in two weeks. Uh, have a wonderful night and stay safe guys. <laughs>